0: Right, so we are in the book of First Thessalonians. Uh, if you're new with us today, if you're uh, visiting for the first time, or you've just been visiting the last couple weeks, uh, we've been working through the book of First Thessalonians. And, and although we've said this before, it's probably helpful to reiterate uh, the reason why we go through books the way we do, um, verse by verse. Some would call it expositionally is because ultimately we believe that you don't need to hear my agenda, you need to hear from the Word of God. And so by preaching through a verse book by book, we're forced to deal with some hard things, we're forced to deal with some uh, really encouraging things as well, and it's not my agenda, but rather it's the agenda of the Word of God. And so I think it's helpful for us just to say that. Uh, Again, I know you've heard it before if you've been here for a long time, but uh, for those who are new, that's kind of the tactic we typically take. Uh, There'll be times where we might have a topical series, but generally speaking, we like to preach through books verse by verse, so that you can hear from the Word of God. As we mentioned last week, the Word of God is a great treasure, and we want to be able to benefit from it. So let me pray and ask that God would bless our time in First Thessalonians today. Father, we are uh, grateful for Your Word, and we are praying that we would look to Your Word as a treasure today. Uh, the things we talked about last week, this idea that the Word of God really is the Word of God. We're praying that we would believe that to be true, and that as we focus on Your Word here in First Thessalonians today that we would hear it for what it is, not some idle words from Paul to a church that's long ago out of date, but rather that we would see that this is the word of God, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Father, we're praying that as we uh, preach through this passage that Aubrey just read, that we would have hearts to hear and eyes to see, that we would be ready to hear from you, that our ears would be attentive to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to hear your voice today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So twice in the last five years, I've had the privilege with my church in Texas that I used to be as a youth pastor. I'd had the privilege of going on a mission trip to Taiwan. And I have to say that both of those trips were fantastic in every way. I love the culture of Taiwan. I love the food of Taiwan. But most of all, I loved the work that we were doing in Taiwan. On both trips that I went on, we had an unbelievable amount of gospel conversations. It was just incredible how the Spirit seemed to be at work. And we had opportunities to tell people about Christ. And they were very receptive to those truths but there was one thing that I hated about going on those trips, and that's that I had to leave my family behind for two weeks. Both times I went to Taiwan, Tanya flew back to Iowa, both of our parents still live in Iowa, and so she would fly back to Iowa, and I just remember those were miserable times, especially the second time I remember. uh, She actually flew out to Iowa a couple days before I flew to Taiwan, and I remember going to the airport and I remember we were just outside of security, and it was an emotional time. Tanya was crying, the kids were crying, although to be fair, I'm not sure if they are crying because I was leaving or just because they were hungry or mad at each other, that, that happens sometimes. And, and I'll say this, that I think the allergies in Texas got the best of me as well, as my eyes seemed to be watering also. It was definitely a very emotional time for all of us. And truth be known, that's the one thing about that Taiwan trip that I just did not like at all. I hated being away from my family. Those two weeks were especially hard. Uh, It it was just difficult to know that I wasn't going to see them, and especially I wasn't going to be able to see Tanya. That was a really difficult time. I longed. Whoa. (laughs) That's good. All right, that was appropriate. I longed. I longed to see her, and I longed to be with her, and I longed to be with our kids. It was a great moment when you came off the plane. You've been traveling all across, across the world, and to see your wife and kids, that's a fantastic moment, but that longing in between is really difficult. And I'm guessing that most people in this room today can relate to that feeling. Maybe not in the same situation. Maybe not in exactly the same way. Maybe it doesn't come out in you. Maybe the emotions don't come out the same. But at least in some way, I'm guessing that you can relate to this idea of longing to see someone face to face. It certainly seems to be a feeling that Paul can relate to in 1 Thessalonians. Maybe you'll remember from Acts 17. In Acts 17, we read about the way that the church started in Thessalonica. And in Acts 17, Paul and his companions start the church at Thessalonica, and then because of opposition to the gospel, they are forced out of the city. Now it seems what's happening, we don't know for sure, but it seems what's happening here in 1 Thessalonians 2, in the beginning of chapter 3, is that again, there are some trying to discredit Paul. They've already been trying to do that at multiple points so far in the book of 1 Thessalonians, but we're seeing it again. They're probably discrediting Paul and saying, if Paul really cares about you so much, why hasn't he come back? That seems to be the question. We don't know that for sure, but a good educated guess is that the reason why Paul is writing what he does in 1 Thessalonians 2, at the very end, and beginning of chapter 3, is because there are some who are saying, well, if Paul really cared about you, he would be here with you. And it seems that it's in response to that type of, of discrediting that Paul is writing what he does. And the main thing that he wants to get across here is that he deeply loves and cares about the Thessalonians. He loves the Thessalonians. In fact, let's read the passage that Aubrey read just a minute ago. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 17. And as we do, let me remind you, as always, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. Starting in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? Or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. All right, there's two things I want you to see in this passage. Two main things. One is this, Paul's love and affection for the Thessalonians. That's the first. And the second is this, I want you to see his concern for the Thessalonians in light of the affliction they were facing. So let's start with the first one, Paul's love and affection for the Thessalonians. From the very beginning of this passage, it's obvious with the language that he uses that Paul deeply loves the Thessalonians. Look again at verse 17. Listen to what he says. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Now the verb that's used in this sentence that the ESV translates as torn away, comes from the Greek word "aporphenizo," aporphanizo, which means this. It means orphaned. It literally means to be orphaned. Now, in that context, it could mean a child being ripped away from their parents, or it could mean a parent being ripped away from their children. Either way, that's obviously a painful experience. Whether you are a child being taken away from your parents or a parent being ripped away from your children, that's awful either way. And yet, listen, that is the way in which Paul describes his separation from the Thessalonians. He likens it to being orphaned. I think that gives us an indication of the level of care he had for the Thessalonians. You don't use that type of language in everyday settings unless you really mean it. For example, let's say that you love Oreos. All right, You love Oreos, and you're eating Oreos, and someone comes and takes the bag of Oreos from you. I doubt that you would say, it feels like I've just been orphaned from these Oreos. Right? You wouldn't say that, even though you might love Oreos. Or maybe you have a job that you love. Maybe you have a job that you love, and something happens, and you lose that job. Even if you love that job, you would probably not compare, it, compare losing that job to the loss of a child or to the loss of a parent. You don't talk that way. We don't talk this way in everyday language. And I I doubt that Paul talked that way in everyday language either. The fact that he does here tells us something about how much he cared about the Thessalonians. He compares his separation from them to being orphaned. To being ripped away from a child or to being ripped away from a parent. He cared deeply about the Thessalonians. Now the obvious follow-up question to that might be this. Well, if Paul cared so much, why didn't he just go to Thessalonica? If that's what it felt like, if he felt so hurt and so pained by what had happened, why didn't he just go? Well, verse 18 is the answer to that question. Verse 18, Paul says this. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, we have no idea how Satan prevented Paul from going to Thessalonica. We're not sure. Maybe it was a sickness Maybe it was a result of some type of persecution. Maybe it was travel difficulties. The honest truth is we just don't know. But whatever it is, Paul says that in some way Satan hindered him from getting back to Thessalonica. Now this is a side note here. It's probably worth noting that twice in this passage, Paul talks about the activity of Satan. In, In the world we live in, which often discounts the spiritual world, it's worth making note that Paul felt that Satan was real and active. And I think that's a word for us, too, that Satan is real and active. Now, we shouldn't emphasize his work at all. And certainly we understand that Christ triumphed over Satan on the cross. And so we should never emphasize the work of Satan over the work of Christ. But it's worth noting here that Paul felt that Satan was real and that he was active. And because Satan was real and active, he was unable to get to Thessalonica. So instead, he sends Timothy. Now, look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He says this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. All right. You have to understand that for Paul to send Timothy, this is a really big deal. When you read the scriptures, it's obvious, not just here in Thessalonians, but in other books where Timothy's mentioned, that Paul greatly valued Timothy. Even the way he describes Timothy here gives us an indication of how much he valued Timothy. He describes him as a brother and God's co-worker in the gospel. It's obvious that Paul held Timothy in great esteem. And it's also obvious that wherever Paul went with Timothy, he viewed Timothy to be of great value to the ministry. And so the fact that he'd be willing to be left alone in Athens, as he describes it here, that's a really big deal. Athens was not an easy place to do ministry. It was not an easy place to do ministry. There are many cultured people who are highly skeptical about the gospel. No doubt there is plenty of opposition to the gospel. If ever you would need a man like Timothy by your side, you would think it would be in Athens. And so the fact that Paul is willing to part with Timothy for the sake of finding out what's going on with the Thessalonians, this is a really big deal. Think of it this way. Imagine that there was persecution that broke out against the church here at New Hope. For the first time, we were experiencing significant opposition. When we walked in on Sunday morning, there are people lined up outside heckling us and ridiculing us that we're coming to this church. And it wouldn't be uncommon that during the service, maybe someone throws rocks or bricks through the windows. Or maybe that at some points they're even arresting some of the leaders and throwing them into jail. Imagine that that's happening here, and we're experiencing it for the first time. And yet imagine at the same time, our sister church in Ukraine is experiencing some opposition as well. They're facing some suffering and some persecution. And so we decided that in the midst of that difficulty that the church in Ukraine was facing, in the midst of the difficulty that we were facing, that we should go ahead and send Che, Che right down here, you may know Che, one of our elders, we should send Che to Ukraine for a couple of months so that he can check check in on the church and encourage them in the faith. Well, that would be crazy, I think. I think that would be crazy because Che is the elder who's been here the longest time. If anyone knows New Hope, it's Che. He's an incredibly wise and humble man, a man who's led by the Spirit and not by the flesh. If there was anyone that we would want here to help us navigate through difficulty and persecution, it would be Che. How much would we have to love that church in Ukraine in order to part with him in that situation? We'd have to love them deeply. I think it's the same thing that's going on here. Paul is facing significant opposition in Athens, wherever he's going, in fact. No matter where Paul goes, he faces opposition. And Timothy was of great value to him. Timothy was the man that he wanted by his right hand doing ministry with him. And yet the fact that he's willing to send Timothy to the Thessalonians tells us how much he loved the Thessalonians. He loved them deeply. Consider how he describes his feelings towards the Thessalonians in verses 19 and 20. Look back at chapter 2, 19 and 20. Look at the words he uses to describe the Thessalonians. He says this in verse 19, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So in two verses, Paul refers to the Thessalonians as his hope, his joy, his crown, his boasting before Jesus. And just for good measure, a second time he refers to them as his joy. It's the same type of language that he used to describe the Philippians in Philippians 4 verse 1. He refers to the Philippians as his crown and as his joy. Now, it wouldn't be surprising to us if we heard a parent talk this way about a child. In fact, you've probably heard a parent talk this way about a child. I've certainly heard a parent say, uh, just use a generic name, Susie is my pride and joy. I've heard someone say that before. I'm sure you've heard someone say, that, some, someone say that as well about their child. They say, oh, so-and-so is my pride and joy. That's not an abnormal way for parents to talk about their children. But for Paul to talk this way about the church, that's unusual. Because it's not that he's referring to his own son in a physical sense, saying, oh, they're my pride and joy. No, he is saying, the Thessalonians are my joy and my crown. And as Paul makes that statement, I think we learn a great deal about his view of the church. And maybe by holding up that verse as a mirror, maybe we learn something about our view of the church as well. Because for Paul, he loved the Thessalonians. My guess is that few of us in this room would be able to point to someone outside of our immediate family, point to someone else in the room and say that that person is my joy and my crown. When Jesus Christ comes, that is the person that I'm going to boast in. That's exactly what Paul says here about the Thessalonians. But I would guess that we can't use that language very often, that we don't talk that way. But Paul did. And I think the reason he talked that way is because he did not view the church as a religious organization. For a lot of people in our culture, that's how we think of church. It's a religious organization. But Paul didn't seem to view the church in that way. When he thought about the church, he thought about people. And not just people, he thought about his family. Have you ever noticed that multiple times when Paul refers to fellow believers in scriptures, he refers to them as brothers or sisters? I think our natural tendency When we think about people that we go to church with, is to think of them as just that, people we go to church with. And even the fact that we think of going to church tells us something about how we view church also. We view it as a place to go rather than a people that gather together. But When Paul thought about the church, he thought about people. When we think about the church, and I'm not just speaking here about New Hope, I'm speaking generally about how people view the church, we think of, oh, they're fellow church members. Or maybe, if it applies, we say, oh, they're fellow members of a care group. I wonder, do we think of fellow church members as family? Probably not so much. But for Paul, when he looked at other believers in Christ, he saw them as members of the family. I think that's why he's able to say with a good deal of sincerity that the Thessalonians are his pride and joy. Listen, I wonder if maybe the reason why some in our culture have become lukewarm about the church or disillusioned about the church or maybe even antagonistic I know that it's primarily a spiritual thing, but I wonder if part of the reason why people look down on the church so much is because the church has become more of a religious social club rather than the family that it's meant to be. Think of it this way. As Paul said earlier, when he had to leave the Thessalonians, he describes it to being orphaned. To a parent being cut off from their children or children being cut off from their parents. So for those of you who have attended New Hope for a period of time, or maybe you're even church members, let me ask you this. If you had to leave New Hope, maybe a job sent you somewhere else or there's some other reason why you had to go to another part of the country or you had to leave this church, would it feel to you like you were orphaned? Would it be as painful for you as if you'd lost a child or lost a parent? I don't know how you'd answer that question, but for most people in most churches in America, I don't think that they could say that with any sort of sincerity. And if you could not say that today, and if I could not say that today, then that probably reveals to us that we still have room to grow in our relationships together. The Christian life was made to be lived together. It's one of the reasons I love the book of First Thessalonians. The book is calling us to live life together. It's calling us to genuinely care about one another. It's calling us to see fellow believers as not just someone we see every now and then, maybe once or twice a week at church functions, but rather it's calling us to look at one another as family. And here is why. It's because of what Jesus did that we are members of the same family. In John 1, a passage I referenced last week, Jesus says, To all those who believed in him, to those who received, this is John talking about Jesus, to all those who received Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. In multiple other points in Scripture, it says that those who are believers in Christ are adopted into the family of God. The reason we are a member of the same family is because we have been adopted through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are members of the family because of what he did. So here is the difference between New Hope Fellowship and the local Rotary Club. Or here's the difference between New Hope Fellowship and the local Country Club or the local Parent Teacher Association. Because of Christ's death on the cross, we are brothers and sisters together, we are family. And I would argue that that should change our relationships. If you hear that the neighbor's kid down the block got an F on their math test, that they failed the math test, you probably don't care that much. But if your son or daughter gets an F on the math test, I would guess that you probably care very much. And for those of you who are still students, I'm sure that you could attest to that. If you've ever failed a test, I would guess that you could say, yes, your parents care. Now, why is that? Why don't you care about the neighbor kid, but you care about your own kid? Because you're family. Because your lives are intertwined together. But I would argue that that's how we should start to think about the church. That The church is not just meant to be a group of people who gather together to hear a message and sing a few songs. No, we are a family that should be committed to helping each other grow in Christ. That's the picture of the church in the New Testament. That's why Paul refers to the Thessalonians as his crown and joy. That's why he says that when he was separated from the Thessalonians, it was like being orphaned. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I would contend that church membership is a really important thing. Next week, we'll have our church membership process where we have a covenant for people who are joining the church. And I would say church membership is important because it helps us to identify who are the members of the family. When you commit to being a church member, you are committing that you want to be a part of the family. Listen, if we've gotten to the point where we think that the church is just a religious organization that meets once a week or maybe twice, and that's pretty much the extent of the way that we look at the church, then what Paul says about the church here in First Thessalonians makes no sense. The church is his hope. The church is his crown. The church is his boasting before Christ. It's his joy. That only makes sense if our lives are intersected together, if we're living life together, if our joy is tied to the joy of others. And since we know this, that ultimately joy comes from knowing Christ, then I would say this, that our joy is found in finding our satisfaction in Christ and helping others to do the same. So let me ask you a really practical question. What did you do in this last week to help other people in this body find their satisfaction in Christ? Or to ask it in a future way, what will you do in this coming week to help your family members, the members of the church, to find their satisfaction in Christ? If that's where joy is found and if our lives are intersected together and if we're a family, I think it's worth asking, what are we going to do going forward to help other people find their satisfaction in Christ? Or to ask it the other way, what can other people do to help you find your satisfaction in Christ. Listen, this idea of Lone Ranger Christianity, that you're just going to do it on your own, is completely inconsistent with the New Testament. We need each other. And it's not just that other people need you, although they do. They need you to help them find their satisfaction in Christ. It's that you need them. You need them to help you find your satisfaction in Christ. I think the reason why Paul talks the way he does about the Thessalonians is because those are the types of relationships he had. At first glance, it may seem like maybe he's overstating his case and being so obsessive about getting the Thessalonians, or maybe it seems like he's just making an offhanded comment about the Thessalonians being his joy and his crown. But I don't think that these are offhanded comments or that he's being obsessive. Rather, I think that this just gives us a picture of what true Christian relationships should look like. We're tied together. We need one another. We're family. We should love and we should care about one another. We should help one another to find our satisfaction in Christ. And we certainly see that in the life of Paul. And we see it manifested here as it relates to a specific concern he has about the Thessalonians and the affliction that they were facing, which leads to the second big thing we can say about this passage. Notice Paul's concern for the Thessalonians in light of the afflictions that they were facing. Look at verses 2 to 5. Verses 2-5 to of chapter 3. Verse 2 says this, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So I think verses 2-5 to help us to understand why Paul was so desperate for Timothy to get to the Thessalonians. He cared about them, and he was concerned about them. He knew that they were facing some affliction, and he wanted to make sure to get Timothy there so that he could exhort and encourage them in the faith. And as Paul talks about why he sent Timothy, and as he talks about affliction, I think there's actually a great deal for us to learn here. Specifically as it relates to this idea of affliction. Notice first the reality of affliction. The reality of affliction. Look at verses 2 and 3. Again, listen carefully. The language that Paul uses here is pretty remarkable. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Listen to this. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Now we're not sure what afflictions Paul is talking about here. Is he talking about persecution? The Thessalonians were definitely facing persecution. Is he talking about sickness or maybe even people they love dying? There's no doubt, given what we read in verse, both First and Second Thessalonians, that people were dying in Thessalonica and others were concerned. People that they loved were passing away. That's part of the reason why they were so obsessed with the end times, which we'll get to later, why they were so obsessed with the return of Christ because they were concerned about people dying. Is this the affliction that he's talking about? Maybe. Or is he talking about something else? We're not sure what he's talking about when he talks about these afflictions, but what we do know is this, that he uses strong language once again. He tells the Thessalonians that they were destined for afflictions, meaning that affliction was a part of God's plan. Now certainly this flies in the face of the health and wealth gospel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the health and wealth wealth gospel, but if you've never heard of it, the name itself is pretty descriptive. And it's pretty telling of what it actually entails. It's sometimes called the prosperity gospel. And basically, the idea of the health and wealth gospel goes like this. That if you believe in Christ and you have enough faith, then you will be healthy and wealthy. Hence the health and wealth gospel. That you will prosper. Now, you may or may not know this, but some of the best-selling Christian books in this country right now are written by pastors who are advocating a health and wealth gospel. And sadly, and I would argue tragically, The health and wealth gospel is making its way across the sea, oftentimes because of American influences to Africa and other places around the world. But the problem with the health and wealth gospel is it's just not true. It's heretical. Listen, I think this is important for you to know. Sometimes you can do everything right. Sometimes you can be passionate about Christ. You can honor Christ in every aspect of your life you can pray like crazy you can read your bible like the treasure that it is you can be super generous with your time and money you can love christ more than anything and affliction can still come ask the thessalonians who paul says they were destined for affliction but listen don't just take this passage out of context here let's not just look at this passage and make a whole theology based on one verse Let's take a quick journey through the New Testament here. There are many more verses I could go to, but let me just give you a few that indicate that suffering is a reality of living in this world, whether you're a Christian or not. All right, so turn back to John 16. We're just going to make a quick trip here. It's going to look at three different places, but let me tell you, there are many more that argue that suffering is a reality. And besides these verses, certainly we can look at the lives of the apostles or even the lives of Jesus to say that, or the life of Jesus, to say that suffering is a reality, even when you're doing the right thing. Say what you want about the apostles. They were obviously sinful, but Jesus was not, and he still faced affliction. But listen to what Jesus says in John 16, verse 33. Verse 33, Jesus says this, "I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation." Other translations say, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Alright, keep flipping here. Acts 14. So just a couple books, or just one more book to the right. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. Again, we're just trying to paint the picture here that what Paul says in Thessalonians about the believers being destined for affliction is not an isolated verse. Acts 14, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. One more, first Peter, so quite a ways to your right this time. After first and second Thessalonians, we go past Hebrews, first Peter four. Verses 12 and 13. First Peter 4, verse 12 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Listen, I, I don't know how you can read the Bible with sincerity and come to the conclusion that you can avoid suffering just because you're a Christian. Suffering, affliction, persecution, they are reality for those who are in Christ. And listen, it's not just that we read that in Scripture, although that would be enough. but We see it in life too, don't we? Just this last week, I saw this video online of a 27-year-old Christian man who's essentially making a video of his last words to his infant daughter. This man had stage 4 appendix cancer. In the video, I think it was an attempt for him to share a last message for his daughter that she could watch years from now, but also he was sharing his Christian faith and talking about how his faith in Christ had sustained him and had enabled him to keep pushing forward. And as I understand the video, a couple weeks after it was shot, or maybe a couple months, I'm not sure, but a short time after they shot the video, the young man passed away. Um, in fact, um, it, this happened in the last month or two that he passed away. And as I was watching the video... And again, um, those allergies that got the best of me in, in Texas were getting the best of me here in New York, too. So maybe it's not allergies after all. But as I was watching this video and I was overwhelmed with emotions again, I couldn't help but think of how beautiful and moving his testimony was. When they asked him at the beginning of the video, what's the one word you would use to describe your situation in life right now? He said, blessed. And then he talked about how his faith in Christ was what had sustained him and that he had this all surpassing peace that came from Christ. So as I was watching this, I couldn't help but be moved by the beauty and the power of this. And yet at the same time, I couldn't help but be deeply saddened. Deeply saddened. I knew the outcome of the story. And I knew that after he shot this video that he would go on to die. And it's sad, right? This is the world we live in. It's filled with suffering and persecution and affliction. It's not just situations like that. It's also where we read stories of people suffering directly because of their faith. If you watch the news at all and you've been keeping up with what's happening in Egypt and Syria and North Korea, you know that there are people, there are stories of people even now who are dying because of their faith in Christ. And it's sobering. It's an incredibly sad reality that the world we live in has suffering and affliction, even for Christians. In fact, maybe even sometimes especially for Christians. And I think that's something we need to acknowledge. It certainly seemed to be Paul's tactic he was willing to acknowledge the reality. Look at what he says in verse 4. He was willing to acknowledge and prepare people for the reality of affliction and suffering. Verse 4 says this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. You know the more I think about verse 4, the more strange I think that verse is. Think for a minute about what Paul is saying here. He's basically discipling new Christians, right? He started the church in Thessalonica, and so when he's talking about what he said to the Thessalonians, these are new believers in Christ. And What he's telling them is he says, I told you when I was with you over and over that you would suffer affliction. I think that should seem a little bit odd to us. If you were discipling a new Christian, what would you pass on to them? Would you talk to them about the joy of following Christ? Would you talk to them about the reality of the future hope we have? Would you talk to them about the joys of being able to connect with God through prayer? Would you talk to them about the treasure that is God's Word? Would you talk to them about the importance of the church? I hope you would talk about all those things. But if you were meeting with a new believer, would you also tell them that they must suffer for the sake of the Gospel? I don't know that I would. It doesn't seem like the greatest strategy, and yet that's exactly what Paul does here, right? It's not the most uplifting message, and yet this is what he does. There's a reason Well, when they have infomercials about exercise programs like P90X or Insanity or whatever other one that's out there now, they always talk about the benefits of the program and not the difficulties, right? They may say, oh, this is going to be hard, but they don't tell you that tomorrow it's going to feel like your arms are going to fall off, right? Instead, they lift up and they say, oh, you're going to feel so much better. You'll have so much energy. Your body's going to look so much better. You're going to lose all this weight. They don't talk about the fact that to get there, you will essentially have to torture your body for 90 days, right? They don't talk about that on the commercials. They just talk about the benefits of it. Well, that makes sense. It makes sense because no one wants to hear about the difficulty. And yet when Paul is talking to the Thessalonians, it seems that he went out of his way to emphasize the difficulty of following Christ. That the affliction that would be coming if they pursued Christ. Now maybe you would say, well, that's because the Thessalonians were experiencing a lot more persecution. And that's true. Certainly the persecution that the Thessalonians were facing is much more in their face than what we experience. But let's not kid ourselves here. We too will face affliction. Some of it will just be the affliction of living in a fallen world. Pain, sickness, and death. Other times it will be affliction specifically related to our faith in Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But as we acknowledge that reality, and I think we do need to acknowledge that reality, Let's be careful to place in the overall narrative of Scripture. Think again of that passage in John 16. Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But that's not where the verse stops, is it? He says, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And that's the thing. From Genesis 3 forward, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in Genesis 3 and sin entered the world, since that point, this world has been messed up. Death and decay and pain are everywhere. And the reality is that in this world we will have trouble. But Jesus has overcome the world. By dying on the cross for sin, Jesus was victorious over sin and death and Satan. And one day he will restore all things and make them new. We live in the period that some have described as the already and the not yet. He has already defeated sin and Satan and death. And yet... The full effects of that victory are not yet realized. There is still pain and suffering and difficulty in this world. But one day, there will be no more crying. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain. And there will be no more death. And we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, we acknowledge the difficulty of living in this world. Which leads to the last thing we see in this passage. The reality of the difficulty of affliction and the need for encouragement. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. Paul says this, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. And then go back to verse 2 for a second. Again, a verse we've read already. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. Listen, Paul acknowledges something here that we all know to be true. The trials and difficulties and suffering and affliction can often be difficult times in our faith. In fact, sometimes trials are one of the means that Satan uses to get us to question God's goodness. We've probably all known someone who at one point or another seemingly turned away from their faith because of difficulties that they were experiencing. Now, I would argue it's possible that they never had a genuine faith in Christ or maybe their faith is just wavering and eventually they'll come back because I'm of the theological persuasion that if you're a genuine believer in Christ, you will persevere to the end. But that said, what we're trying to say here is that affliction and suffering is hard, and sometimes it can cause our faith to waver. Listen, I referenced the P90 workout program earlier, or P90X workout program earlier. If you don't know much about the program, it's really intense. I've never done it, but I've had several friends who have tried to do it. Emphasis on tried. Right? I have a few who've actually finished, but most of them have just tried. In fact, I read an article this week where it's estimated that only 7 to 10% of the people who buy P90X actually finish the program. 7 to 10%. Now, why is that? It's because the glory, the promised glory of losing weight and feeling better quickly fades away when you realize that you have to do 90 days of really hard exercise. Well, the same danger is there for our faith, right? At first, we can be attracted to the idea. Of eternal life, or attracted to the idea of forgiveness of sins, but we forget the cost of following Jesus. If you get the chance, you should read through the gospels sometime here in the next couple of months and make note of all the times that Jesus talks about the cost. There is a cost to following Jesus, and sometimes we forget that. But eventually life catches up. And in fact, there will be times where we experience difficulty precisely because of our faith which is why we need to encourage one another. That's why Paul was so concerned about sending Timothy to the Thessalonians because he knew that the realities of life were going to get to them. And he knew that they needed encouragement because he knew that the promised glory of eternal life and forgiveness of sins it was going to fade away as they faced the reality of living in a difficult world. And so listen, we need to acknowledge suffering is real affliction is real even if you are a christian maybe especially if you're a christian we are going to have to deal with affliction but we need to make a point to make sure that we are encouraging one another we need to remind one another both before suffering and during suffering that god is sovereign over all things and we need to remind one another that god does really love us and we need to remind one another that god has purposes even in suffering This week, I stumbled across an article about suffering, and they quoted Charles Spurgeon talking about the purposes of suffering. And Spurgeon said this, "'Do we not profit most in stormy times? "'Have you not found it so that your sickbed, "'your bereavement, your depression of spirit "'has instructed you in many matters "'which tranquility and delight have never whispered to you? "'I suppose we ought to learn as much by joy as by sorrow, "'and I hope that many of the Lord's better servants do so, "'but alas, others of us do not.'" Affliction has to be called in to whip the lesson into us. Let's remind each other that God has purposes even in suffering. But most importantly, let's remind one another of the glories and the truth of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's remind one another, both before suffering and during suffering, maybe even after suffering has passed, let's remind one another that at the cross we see the love of God displayed. That God loved us so much that he would send his son to die for us. To pay the punishment that we deserve to die. Let's remind one another that at the cross we see Christ's victory over darkness. Let's remind one another that at the cross that we see that although the world is grim. And although there is a real difficulty of living in this world. There is still hope. And that hope is found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. It's obvious more than anything that what Paul wanted for the Thessalonians is that they would find their hope in Christ. The reason why he longed to see them, the reason why he sent Timothy to them is because he wanted the Thessalonians to continue to put their faith and their hope in Christ. And listen, in light of the realities we face, in light of the affliction that we deal with, in light of the generation we live in, in light of the sinfulness that exists in all of us, I think the question that's worth asking for us today is the same question. Are we putting our hope and faith in Jesus Christ? That's the only hope that there is. Jesus Christ. Let's put our hope, let's put our faith in him. Let's look to him, the one who endured suffering on the cross, so that we might, with him, be victorious over sin and death and Satan. Let's look to Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank, thank you. Mm. For your word. We thank you for the fact that your word does not shy away from difficult things. Maybe it's not pleasant to talk about affliction, but it is real. And we can choose to put our heads in the sand and pretend as if affliction will never come, but we know that's just not true. We know it from your word, but we know it from experience. And we know that the only hope there is is found in Christ. We also know that we need each other. There's a reason why Paul talks the way he does about the Thessalonians because he recognizes that they needed each other because he saw them as family. And so as we talk about affliction, maybe as we just talk about living in times of, of, of plenty as well, we know that we need the family. So help us to see this church as a family. Help us to see that we are not just a group of people who gather together for religious exercises, but rather we are brothers and sisters in Christ. If there are any here today who do not know you, I pray that they would see the surpassing value of Jesus Christ and they would recognize that they too can belong to the family, that they too can be adopted into the family. We pray that they would turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ today. Oh God, if there are any here today who do not know Christ, I pray that their eyes would be opened to the glorious truth that Christ is supreme. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.